There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Northern Line extension sparks criticism for hoovering up local funds. New research reveals the growing flood risk to thousands of Londoners. A think tank is blasted for its utter nonsense criticism of AJ's retrofit campaign. Climate activists receive heavy-handed policing in the run-up to COP26. And architecture lecturers stand up against unfair and discriminatory contracts. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Aidan Dekadem. Aidan is a councillor for Queenstown Ward in the Battersea and Nine Elms area of Wandsworth, South West London. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Our top story this week is all to do with growing criticism of the Northern Line extension, which opened to the public last week. Opinions have been piling in on Twitter, covering a range of issues, including disabled access and the frequency of services. Our guest, Aidan, who grew up in Battersea, is a local councillor and has written on the subject both in Tribune and Navarra Media. The first addition to the Northern Line since the Clapham to Morden stations were unveiled in 1926, the two new stops serve the enormous Vauxhall Nine Elms Battersea Regeneration Zone. It's an area which has seen speculative apartment block after ever more speculative apartment block, not to mention the odd sky pool pop up over the last decade. Many have questioned the necessity of this multi-million pound extension, drawing attention to concerns that these luxury homes, often bought as second or even third dwellings by wealthy overseas investors, may never reach a high level of occupancy. As a result, there are doubts over who these stops will actually serve, especially considering the last stop at Battersea Power Station is a long way from other areas of dense population and economic activity in the borough, such as Clapham Junction, but also Wands of Town or even Roehampton, to name a few areas. Question marks also hover over the financing of this rail infrastructure project. Nearly £270 million of the £750 million project was funded by Section 106. This is a tax paid by developers to invest in local community infrastructure. It's typically elsewhere earmarked for affordable housing. If you want to know how important and hard to come by this funding really is, just ask some of the estimated 1.6 million households on social housing waiting lists in England. As a consequence of funneling money into this tube line, the Vauxhall Nine Elms Battersea mega development 
will produce only 15% quote affordable housing a significant reduction compared to the 33 to 44% which is usually required of such large projects the delivery of this line also comes as news breaks of the financial difficulties of some of the main players involved in the wider redevelopment of the area RNF Properties, the Hong Kong-based developer behind three enormous and neighbouring multi-skyscraper projects, that's Vauxhall Square by architects Allies and Morrison, Nine Elms Square by SOM, and the catchily named One Nine Elms by KPF, they've borrowed £430 million from banks amid fears that the escalating property prices in China could hit projects in the UK. Meanwhile, Chinese property giant Evergrande teeters precariously on the verge of collapse, bringing with it fears of contagion across international markets. So Aiden, what's this all about? This story has so many players and twists and turns. Can you describe what the situation is we're in now with Nine Elms and how we got here? Yeah, so that, that's a really comprehensive introduction you've done um, and really, really helpful to kind of lay out some of the m- multiple moving parts of the Nine Elms development. Um, f- for me, the two kind of cardinal sins are the way that the tube station was funded and the original deal on the Batsy power station. So firstly, on the, on the area of the, the power station, you really have to understand it in the context of the 2008 financial crash. So uh, the council finds a partner, uh, Treasury Holdings, an Irish property company, that finally decides, you know what, we are going to regenerate the power station. We have these plans, we have this scheme, and they set it up. And there's a lot of political capital from the leader, Edward Lister, so it's a real kind of, it's, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of political capital tied up in making sure that finally something does something with Nine Elms and with the, and with the power station. But 2008 financial crisis hits and Treasury Holdings goes bankrupt. It's an Irish property developer, you know, Kel Surprise. Um, the, the great decision, though, that is made, that, that kind of will, will have implications for decades to come, is that a planning application that was meant for the Battersea Power Station, you know, that would provide thousands of affordable homes at the 30% rate, a theatre, you know, restaurants. That planning application, the council in the period after the 2008 financial crisis, they use pre-crash land values to try and keep Treasury holding afloat in the period in which there's that uncertainty. And so the planning application goes through on a, on a much more inflated land value compared to what the land is worth in the post-crash period. That, that, that doesn't work. Treasury holding goes bankrupt anyway. Uh, but what it means is there's a planning application with a specific land value attached to it. And that really screws the public for the years to come because the Malaysian pension fund that ends up taking over the site has this high cost land value. And the way that the way that these things are worked out is that developers have to have a certain rate of return of profit for their schemes. And so if they've paid a lot for the land because the council has artificially inflated it to try and keep a certain developer there, which is now gone, the new in- developer is inheriting that cost. And so the marginal rate through which you would be able to afford social housing goes down. Whereas if the land had been sold at the rate that it should have and the planning application had gone through like that, then you wouldn't be stuck in this bind. So that's one of the reasons why, I mean, at the Battersea Power Station site, you, we're not even going to get the 15% affordable housing because in 2017, they managed to negotiate down their affordable housing criteria to 9%. Uh, 
So we're getting a regeneration of the Batty Power Station that was going to produce thousands of, of social rent homes, uh, uh, which, which will now do 9%, many of which will be kind of shared ownership. You have to remember also it's in 2012 what affordable means changes. So the context of when these first decisions were made, we were talking about real social housing, right? Like, you know, affordable meant affordable. From 2012 onwards, part of this bonfire to encourage development because of the financial crash, David Cameron decides to, to, to change what affordable means. So it can be 80% of market rate. It can be these things like shared ownership, which is a kind of uh, public subsidy onto the ha- housing ladder. Uh, so again, we're, we're, we're really losing thousands of what we would consider to be social, real social homes in, the, in this process because the affordable homes that we're ending up with later on uh, uh, you know, are often not really affordable. And then you have the tube station. Now, now, now the tube station is part of, again, this post-2008 crash moment in which, well, how are we going to regenerate Nine Elms? There's, the market has fallen, there's a recession, no one's going to want to build anything. Uh, and this is kind of like, this mistake was made across cities, across the world, right? The idea that uh, because of the financial crash, there was going to be this big halt in house building and developers weren't going to do anything. Now, we now know the macroeconomic implications of the quantitative easing that was used. What we found out during the, during the financial crash is that actually that process, uh, the, the money finds its way into the pockets through bonds and through loans, into the pockets of the wealthiest people who are hungry for assets because interest rates are rock bottom, right? So the government and the council are trying to kind of give all these carrots to these developers to come and develop in Nine Elms because, oh, they're not going to do it. We're never going to get anyone to build there at this moment in which actually there was about to be a kind of explosion in, in property prices. So they kind of said, oh, well, if you want to develop in Nine Elms, uh, you only have to provide 15% uh, affordable housing. And the reason that they did that is because the developers were saying, well, Nine Elms, you know, there's not very good transport links, you know. So to encourage the developers to turn up, the council gives them all these, all these offers, one of which is that uh, we, we're going to get you a tube station. But to pay for that tube station, uh, we're going to take the money that we would normally use to build the affordable housing that, you, that we tax on you, the Section 106, and we're going to put that into the tube. And the developers, are, I can imagine, you know, you can imagine them going, oh, well, OK, you know, that, that's a fair deal. Of course, it's not a fair deal. You're taking the money that we tax from you to provide a public good to build a piece of infrastructure that is going to make your properties way more valuable, right? It's like a given, you know, like the tube station was something that was a benefit to the developers. But it was a decision made, again, in this kind of post-crash world where the council, um, so we've, you know, the, the council, uh, the new incumbent mayor, Boris Johnson, and uh, uh, the, the coalition government had decided that, you know, the time was now to get this private finance, public partnership. And I look back at it as a kind of great scandal because it meant that now all developments are capped at 15% affordable housing provision in Nine Elms. If I think about it, like we, we do agree there are some transport issues in Battersea and also in Wandsworth, mm. right? And this is a new tube line. So just looking specifically at those tube stations, can you see anything positive in them? And if not, what are the problems with them? Why are they in the wrong spots? And what could this line actually be if it was a really useful line? I felt a sense of excitement when they opened. I can't deny it. You know, my, my frustration is with the, the opportunity that was lost. Um, is it the most useful place for the borough? Of course not. You know, that'd be Clapham Junction. I mean, it, you know, I, I probably won't use that tube, to be honest, because it's easier for me to get to Clapham Common. 
Our next story was covered by Property Week, and it's all to do with growing evidence of major flood risk across the UK and particularly in London, and the detrimental impact this could have on property prices. Although, of course, property prices aren't everything. Um, around 58% of people would think twice about buying property on a floodplain, a new study from the Climate Coalition finds. As a result, approximately two-thirds of people living in homes on potential floodplains face serious doubts about the possible sale of their investment, also known as a home. It's not something you typically see in a state agent's window, a giant map showing that the area could be flooded, um, but an estimated 5.2 million properties in the UK are at risk of flooding, a number which has the potential to double within the coming 50 years. Heavy rainfall in London in July, for example, saw areas of large-scale redevelopment, including Pudding Mill Lane, but also Nine Elms Lane, so we've just been discussing, absolutely inundated with water. It grabbed headlines and that shocking pictures and video was shared widely on social media at the time. Uh, extreme weather patterns are on the rise due to climate change, the Met Office says. Uh, analysis of the past 60 years shows that periods of heavy rainfall are on the up, with the number of extremely wet days increasing 17%, in the period 2008-2017 compared to 1961-1990. to uh, The lobbying group, that's the Climate Coalition, is calling on the government to, quote, deliver a clear plan to limit a rise in temperatures and stop extreme weather, such as flooding, from getting worse, to protect people and places across the world. Uh, Fiona Deer, she's the head of campaigns at the organisation, said that intense rainfall will, quote, lead to more properties being exposed to the risk of dangerous, expensive flooding and a rising tide of stranded families who can't sell their homes. Deer added... Our homes should be our sanctuaries, places where we can feel safe and thrive. Now is the time to take action. All of this comes ahead of the COP26 Climate Summit, which is set to kickstart in Glasgow on the 1st of November. So, Aiden, obviously it's easy to get lost in the numbers when you're looking at a problem as expansive as the climate crisis. But what do these figures actually mean on the ground for the 140,000 Londoners at high risk and 230,000 Londoners at medium risk of flooding? Yeah, so in, in my ward uh, during the summer, there were horrific floods that really, really damaged and destroyed the lives of people living around what we call the Diamond Conservation Area, which is um, an, a number of kind of residential uh, homes off Queenstown Road. These were floods that totally destroyed the ground floor flats of, of the people that were living there. And the it was just a total failure of the the uh, drainage systems and the, and the street systems to be able to handle the flash flood rains that had turned up. Um, now, it's not the first time this has happened. It happened actually on the day of the EU referendum in 2016. Um, and uh, there was another terrible flood. Uh, I think it was five years before that. Each time these floods have been happening, the kind of response from uh, Thames Water was like, well, these are kind of one in a hundred year events. So, we, you know, the reality is that they're becoming more and more frequent. Residents are really, really angry. Um, they're angry that why the systems haven't worked. Um, there's a huge piece of infrastructure happening called the Tideway Tunnel, which is a kind of super sewer that has been in the in the works for many years. Now, Thames Water can often turn around and say, well, we're doing this. This is the thing that's going to save everything. and You won't have that problem anymore. But, you know, it keeps being delayed. The costs of it keep going up. I think the last... The last time I looked into it, the project was going to be delayed until March 2025. Um, uh, there'd been an increased cost of around 200 million to it. So it's a, it's a difficult, long and comp complex project. And in the meantime, the climate crisis emerges upon us and residents are really, really feeling it. 
But just thinking back, you know, for example, there was the Thames Barrier that was built in London in 1984 by the GLC, the Greater London Council. Um, before then, large areas of low-lying central London were at significant risk of tidal flooding. There were information maps. There was even drills in schools. There was a siren system, public information campaign. Um, and I just think, looking back, you know, why was it that in the past an organisation like the GLC was able to deliver a major infrastructure project to the benefit of all Londoners, not just the people lying in those, uh, sorry, living in those flood prone areas. But now, even with the kind of massive influx of billions and billions of pounds coming into a city like London, little seems to be being done to turn the situation around. It's, it's really interesting you, you mentioned what existed before, because, of course, that's what residents have turned around and asked for. They're like, well, can we have an alarm system so that we know to prepare? Can we have uh, the council give us the resources to have sandbags and to have preventative measures? If you're not going to sort out the material problem, which is our gullies, our drains, you know, we, there are all these other parts of infrastructure that would have just been kind of normal in the 20th century. And it's part of that kind of hollowing out of the role of local government and the role of local councils. And the way to think about it is, you know, uh, our mayor has drastically limited powers compared to other mayors. Um, I think that's one of the biggest problems we have. You know, as much as Sadiq tries to get things done, he just does not have the same powers as the mayor of New York would have or the mayor of Paris. Um, uh, I think with the, the situation we've seen over COVID with the TfL and the ability to raise fine, you know, he got was hammered on TfL, even though he'd done a very good job of getting TfL back into the black. And then obviously the fares collapsed because no one was getting the tube because of the pandemic. But he then had to sign a kind of terrible deal because the government kind of bullied him into it so we just don't have the powers in local government the way that we we used to and, and we certainly don't have the budgets and so that i think that has a large part to play you are listening to the lundown a weekly news show brought to you by open city we rely on support from people like you to make this show so if you like the lundown and want to support our work please share the link leave us a review on itunes and consider becoming an open city friend the Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as £9.99 a month and Adobe will donate to OpenCity for everyone who signs up. Our next story is all to do with a Twitter row which ignited after an article published by the BBC reported that Britain's top engineers were calling on the government to bring a halt to unnecessary building demolition. The article pointed out that the significant embodied carbon of buildings is often left out of people's minds when it comes to redevelopment. Materials such as bricks and steel produce a huge amount of CO2 when they are made, and cement alone causes 8% of global emissions. However, in response to this article, Anthony Breach, senior analyst at Centre for Cities, that's an urban policy think tank whose funders include banks, pension funds, and even the outsourcing giant Capita, wrote on Twitter that stopping demolitions was a form of class warfare. He went on to say that, quote, middle class people, mostly academics, chartered professionals and full-time activists, etc., are demanding working-class people live in buildings that are literally rotting for the supposed sake of climate. It's a bit of an odd uh, straw-person argument, one might say. His, his comments uh, were met with an immediate backlash online, with some accusing Breach of trying to start a new culture war. 
Will Hurst, a veteran built environment journalist whose work exposing the procurement failings of the ill-fated Garden Bridge saw him shortlisted for the Paul Foot Award, that's the UK's most prestigious prize for investigative journalism, described Breach's comments as, quote, utter nonsense, and said that, quote, we urgently need mass retrofitting of our homes, and this must be done to a high standard. So, Aidan, we have an analyst from the Centre for Cities describing the campaign to retrofit housing estates with better insulation, services, double glazing, rather than demolishing them as class warfare. Um, Do they have a point? Uh, Do working class Londoners stand to lose out if housing estates are protected from demolition? Uh, But also, consequently, you know, what kind of impact does demolition have on communities like these? Tell that to the residents of the Haygate estate. I mean, I just, it's absurd. It's just totally absurd. Tell that to the residents of the West Hendon estate. Um, uh, I, I thought we'd gone beyond this. I thought we'd defeated these arguments in 2014 when the move around regeneration and, and, and what it meant, you know, through the power of residents rising up and, and speaking out, we managed to get massive changes from the GLA level as well. I was part of the uh, ballots campaign, which was about making sure that social tenants got a ballot if their home was to be destroyed because they weren't even getting a, a chance to do that. Now we're sadly seeing that those ballots are often kind of rigged because the options are kind of like, would you like to stay in your, you know, poorly maintained block or would you like X, Y, Z, amazing thing, tick on this box without really without really kind of highlighting the the implications. There's also a kind of financial uh, move at the moment towards demolishing Demolishing well-planned, well-spaced-out um, council estates because they're on public land, and what you can do is demolish them, and then use, build, you know, increase the density massively to, to build private rent homes that then cross-subsidise the move from those who live on the estate into the into new build. Um, of course, the long drawn-out process through which that happens means many of those residents leave anyway. Um, and so you get this, you, you, you know, you get communities destroyed. The market rent housing, again, pushes property prices up in the surrounding area for those who are in not secure tenancies, but uh, social renting off of a private landlord on housing benefit. And then suddenly they're kicked out because the neighbourhood's been gentrified. So, yeah, we're talking about class war. I just think it's I think it's absurd. Um, I think I think the retrofit argument is an important one because politically on on uh, state regeneration, Often the argument was to do with the social implications, uh, you know, the, the kind of damage that it did to working class communities and the people being, you just have to look at, you know, go on 35percent.org, um, see what happened to the Haygate residents, where they were placed, the displacement that happened, the loss of social housing, the cost of the council, the private profits, you know, you know just despicable, really. Um, now, the move around... The climate and the, 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 the we're learning about the environmental impact of demolishing buildings and the embodied carbon that it takes and the fact that often the new build we build are not up to the standard that means that they'd have to be retrofitted in 10 years anyway um, is much more is much stronger and it, it's almost a bit of a shame that we have to make that argument and that cuts through better with some people than the argument around the well-being of, of the residents who live on those estates in the first place now there is a point that you know if residents vote to have their homes demolished, you know, there are, there are, there are estates where the re- it's about the resident sovereignty. If residents want their homes demolished because they do not believe that their homes or their community could be retrofitted or could meet the standard or, you know, and then that's their choice. It's about sovereignty and democracy. But that's not what happens. They are offered promises that don't materialise. They are 
councils are kind of forces on their entire PR companies that are set up to convince people that this is going to be good for them. I've taken part in those campaigns. I work very closely with Lisa Begum, who's now a councillor in Westminster, who was fighting to ensure that the regeneration of her estate, uh, Walden House, um, by the Grosvenor Group, happened in a way in which residents' interests were protected. And in the end, they did want to see demolition happen because of the fact their building didn't have a lift, the fact that all of them were in overcrowded accommodation and they were going to get... But they fought and they won concessions around not having to move off-site because once you're off-site, five years' time, you know, things can change. Developers can screw you over. Councils can screw you over. So it's a, for me, it's all about democracy. And, and what we've seen with the state regeneration in London is it has not been about democracy or the sovereignty of the residents or what's in their best interest. It's been about longer-term projects around how we can build more market-rent housing, how developers can, can make their profits, how councils can try and get Section 106 that they then build shared ownership with, how we end up with a, a net loss of social housing in many of these regenerations, right? It's very interesting, a tweet from a, a supposed analyst at an urban policy think tank to, to not even really mention the people living in the homes at all, but just to go all out attack on a whole bunch of other people. It's like, hang on a second. <laughs> what about the issues uh, that are here? It fr- and it frustrates me so much because if you, if, like often the case is because the building has not been maintained in the first place because retrofit should have been done 20 years ago, not right now. And now it's being used as an excuse to demolish the homes, possibly rebuild those who want to stay and then quadruple the density with with market rate properties to pay for it because the councils don't have the money to regenerate you know, by themselves. They have to fundraise through selling off public land. So you get the privatisation of public land you often don't get a single added council home. You're just replacing like for like if you're lucky. Many of those residents move out. So, so the community is dispersed. But also the reason why people vote for the demolition is because often they're in blocks that have not been maintained. Why is it that the Barbican, the Trellick Tower, you know, that the, 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 you know, if you look at, you look at like the, you know, the, the kind of 1970s architecture of the South Bank, that somehow works and that we, we value that and that's fine. But many of these post-war estates that are left to crumble because they haven't had the proper investment. Oh, yeah, suddenly we, got to, we have to demolish them. There's nothing you can do to resolve them. You know, it's no, it's because middle class people live in some of those buildings and working class people live in the other. Um, so that's the thing that that really frustrates me is that there's it, it's, it's really to do with like how we look after council tenants. Our next story concerns climate activists blocking parts of the M25 motorway which surrounds London. It was covered across the national media, including by the BBC, Daily Telegraph, Independent and The Times. Members of the climate campaign group Insulate Britain defied police when they blocked several slip roads and sections of the motorway last week in a series of daily protests at different locations. A total of 86 people were arrested as police forces from Surrey, Hertfordshire, Kent and London were called out. This mass arrest came just days after the government won an interim injunction against the activists occupying major roads, including the M25. The group's controversial methods have been met with backlash from some, claiming their actions unfairly inconvenient working members of the public. The Home Secretary Priti Patel even described their actions as selfish and unacceptable. Um, speaking on LBC, Tracy Mulligan, a spokesperson for the group, said, quote, We're so tired of over 7 million people having to choose between heating or eating, and we know that's going to get worse with the energy crisis that we're now facing. Mulligan went on to say, Our government is legally failing in its duty to protect us, and I think that we're showing Priti Patel, unfortunately, is trying to scare us with an injunction, and that shows her lack of character, not ours. 
So Iden, Insulate Britain, they're an environmental activist group demanding that every UK home be made more energy efficient in order to meet the UK climate change targets under the Paris Agreement. Um, they're specifically calling for the government to take responsibility to fund the insulation of all social housing by 2025 and all homes by 2030. Uh, what do you make of these demands and are roadblocks the right strategy to get us there? I mean, those demands are essential. Um, before you know, before we get onto you know what Insulate Britain are doing in terms of you know their tactics or whatever, the demand and it's a demand that comes not just from them but from uh, environmental groups and de- you know decarbonising housing groups, big players from business to the third sector. There is a broad understanding that retrofit is an essential pillar of meeting our climate targets. You know, we there is no path to net zero without retrofitting and insulating millions of homes across the UK. Now, why do I think retrofit is so crucial? It's because for me, it's the ideal, it's the golden green policy. When I speak to my mates about the environment, they think, okay, you're going to try to take my car away. You're going to stop me from eating meat. I'm going to not be able to go on holiday anymore on the plane. You know, they see climate activism as something that's going to take something away from them. And I think lots of the British public feel that way about it. Retrofit, you know, decarbonising our housing, that is getting rid of the scourge of damp that people have to live with, the scourge of cold, of having to decide whether you put the heating on. Look, personal story, you know, like when my parents got divorced and, you know, we had financial difficulties, the thing I remember most about that was being cold in my home. That's what I remember. You know, it's a thing that will never never leave me. If we can get rid of that for people, that is phenomenal. You're you're putting money back in people's pockets because they're saving on their energy bills if you retrofit their homes. You're also creating thousands of jobs for the local economy. It's, it's win-win. It just happens to help the environment. You know, before, you know, before we get on to the fact that it's, it's good for the environment, it's doing all these things. Public health, you know, people shouldn't, kids shouldn't be growing up in damp, cold housing. So for me, I think retrofit, we talk about Green New Deal and no one knows what it means. You know, you talk about green jobs, no one knows. This is tangible. This is real. You know, and it's not a question of whether this is going to happen, right? We know it has to happen. If the government's going to meet its climate targets, it's got to happen, right? It's a question of, when it happens and how it happens. And I think this could be post-COVID recovery investment that could transform. Red wall communities where these new Tory MPs are, right? They, they're talking about the levelling up agenda. This is the levelling up agenda. You know, millions of jobs can be created. If local authorities, we, in, at the New Economics Foundation, we're calling for local authorities to be the engine of this, right? Every pound spent, right, the multiplier effect is bigger then expenditure on roads, expenditure on trains, expenditure on electricity production, right? You could really boost local economies. Local businesses are desperate to get involved in this work. You know, there are people who own their own home currently who want to have a full retrofit, get a heat pump in. They can't, we can't find the technicians. So you've got this opportunity to train thousands of young people on how to become retrofitters to set up local businesses that do it with the local authority. For me, there's a revolution that's about to happen around retrofit. We've just got to make sure that it's done in a way that isn't kind of outsourced off to big companies or isn't done like the Green Homes Grant, which collapsed, but a way that just transforms communities and prioritises working class people's well-being at the front and face of it. And it happens to help the environment as well. I mean, I love retrofit. I think it's the future. I mean, when you say it like that, it all sounds so reasonable. And especially, you know, we've got 29 million homes in the UK. They're some of the oldest and least energy efficient stock in all of Europe, right? Exactly. Um, But yet... 89 people have just been arrested uh, for, for making this very point. Um, is it just the wrong tactic? Maybe the, yeah, the M25 motorway, in my head, doesn't necessarily link to putting insulation and double glazing on my 
house. Um, but I mean, you know, what about this? Are the tactics the wrong way of doing it, or is it the right way? Because we're chatting about it on this show. Um, I, it's, it's hard. For, it's hard for me to say. Like it's, it's hard for me to say. It needs to get onto the agenda. It really needs to get onto the agenda. Um, there are lots of different people trying to get it onto the agenda in different ways. I think, and this is what the New Economics Foundation is is, is working on, is building that that understanding at the local government level, getting local government to demand the, the resources they need to do this work. Because many of them have been doing it for, for a number of years now and they're seeing the benefits. I, I was speaking to a, a councillor from Leeds, um, who you know, councillor Helen Hayden, who's done amazing work up in Leeds. And, you know, t- t- they retrofitted a block and they, there was a family there who, you know, afterwards said, you know, the first Christmas we haven't had to decide whether we turn our heating on or, or eat. You know, those are the, th- those are the transformational things. Now, what we want to be saying is to the to the general public is like you know these are the stories of how this can transform people's lives these are the jobs that can be created um but we need no one knows what retrofit means it's really technocratic it's really bureaucratic it's very top down like who no one knows what so how do you how do you make it something that the public demand that the public are like i shouldn't have to live in a cold damp home i should be offered a retrofit scheme like that is something i demand from my representatives that's what I that's what I want to see, a campaign that can harness a public demand for this work to happen, for this investment. I want my kid to be on a retrofit apprenticeship, you know. I want my home to be able to get a heat pump. Our final story this week was covered in the AJ. It's all to do with architecture lecturers at the Royal College of Arts, which is based in Kensington and Battersea, who are set to join a university-wide strike during the first two weeks of term. Dozens of staff at the prestigious university are set to refuse to work following a dispute over employment contracts, pay disparity and workloads. The RCA branch of the University and College Union, that's UCU, is organising the strike after a ballot of members showed 82% were in favour of the action on a 63% turnout. The branch has said it wants self-employed staff to be handed permanent contracts. RCA currently has just 60 full-time academic contracts and 120 part-time contracts, while there are 640 atypical contracts and more than a thousand visiting lecturers. It's a massive disparity. Um, In 2016, a UCU report said the RCA is the UK university with the highest proportion of casual staff, 90%. The UCU also said that Quote, issues of overwork and precarity were most keenly felt by staff already marginalised in society, adding that staff belonging to a range of ethnic minorities have, quote, documented serious testimonies of hostile working conditions at RCA. Uh, the quote goes on, with marginalised staff pressured to undervalue their work and expertise, fair working conditions are at the forefront of issues of gendered disability and racial justice, it said. Uh, The strikes are set to be held over 14 days, escalating across four weeks, commencing on the 4th of October. So, Aiden, could you explain a bit about insecure contracts? I think we used to hear a lot about zero-hour contracts. Maybe you could dive into this and and, and why people are protesting about them. Yeah, um, and UCU have done a really good report on this, right, about precarious work in higher education. Um, Look, I've got I've got mates who are in higher education, and you know everyone thinks, ah, oh, you know, you're an academic, you must be, you know, having a great life, you're, you know, bougie, like everything's all good, and and actually, it's becoming one of the more kind of very exploitative system. The more marketized higher education has become, so you know, in in higher education, the use of insecure and precarious contracts is, you know, it's a much bigger issue than anyone is willing to admit. Um, something like 54% of all academic staff and 49% of all academic teaching staff are now on these insecure contracts. 
Um, most staff below the level of senior lecturers who do most of the teaching, they do the, you know, they do the front of house work with undergraduates. They're far more likely to be on fixed term than open-ended contracts. And of course, that has an impact on teaching. It has an impact on the well-being of the staff that are doing this work. It, it all comes down to the marketization of higher education and them basically functioning as businesses. And it's, obviously it's interesting because you know, traditionally when we hear about the plight of zero hours workers and casual workers, often in your head springs to mind like the Amazon warehouse or you know some kind of um, low skilled job. But obviously we're talking right now about an ex- extremely prestigious end of society and the economy, right? And, and what's really interesting is that you know, these, these universities, such as the RCA, right now, instead of investing wealth in their staff, which you think is the whole point of education, having an amazing, highly engaged, committed brains, which is what people come to learn from, instead, uh, they're investing millions of pounds in new campus facilities, you know, such as uh, in Battersea, this new South Campus on Parkgate Road, which is by the Swiss star architects, Herzog de Muron. I think it's reported as being over a hundred million pound investment in this building. It's huge, there's lots of bricks. It'll be all over the architectural press soon. Yeah, why is why is that seen as more valuable than people? This this the story of the economic system we live in, Merlin. Uh, why you know, <laughs> why, you know, what's you know, it's why we go chanting, you know, people before profit. Um, it, it it's yeah, it's it's again, like I say, the marketization of higher education makes they act kind of like small corporations now, and a large investment in a in a in a building which will attract um, students. Uh, what kind of students do they want to attract if they're building a new super fly campus where they can advertise? Well, they're probably trying to attract university students from overseas because they pay a lot more. And so there's a premium on attracting those kind of students. And then and then we get into the whole conversation around student accommodation. And why is it suddenly that we're building 30 storey student accommodation blocks on top of, you know, neighbourhood pubs? Universities become kind of cash cows for, for the, 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 the founders, the board, um, and they, they're competitive and the the lecturers are the you know the more the more power you can take away from lecturers, uh, the more you know the more kind of re- you, you can you divide the system up right. You have your kind of heavy celebrity uh, senior lecturers on high salaries who you know uh, you, you use to kind of sh- showcase yourself, and then you have like a kind of grunt force who do the actual teaching, who do the marking, who are these kind of totally overworked, stress PhD students or junior lecturers. Um, and you get them to work insane hours at the promise that maybe one day they might make it into that 20th century model style secure contract, you know, that, that they're all working so just be half and you can exploit people. And that's the story of, you know, the, the labour market, if you, you're just ex- exploiting people to try and get more out of them. And that's what we're seeing in higher education. And it's disgraceful because, again, we culturally associate these places as somehow that those dynamics won't work because it's all very well-educated people and it's all, you know, it's bourgeois or whatever. And of course, it's not the reality. Aidan, thank you for coming on The Lundown. It's been a great pleasure to feature you on this week's show. Uh, where should our listeners look out for to uh, read more about the things you're working on? Um, how can they keep up to speed on all the fantastic stuff you're doing? Um, well, yeah, they, they can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Aydin Dikadem, uh, A-Y-D-I-N-D-I-K-E-R-D-E-M. Uh, um, and if they're interested in the retrofit campaign, I really, really suggest that they go to the greathomesupgrade.org. Uh, uh, this, this is my day job. My day job is working for the New Economics Foundation, and we are trying to build a national campaign around retrofit. And it's going to involve community organising and advocacy 
and I think it's I think it's a, a really exciting campaign that's going to be crucial to the next 10 years of what a Green New Deal actually looks like community wealth building in our local authorities um, and, and kind of transforming transforming people's lives which I think is has to be at the heart of the green agenda once again thanks for being on the show and I hope you, we can feature you again in the future nice one Martin you've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal which has covered all these issues and many more too you can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.